Talk Radio for inquisitive people. Solace Radio, Bonavista, Colorado. You're listening to Solace Radio, Monta Vista, Colorado. If you like the programming you hear on Solace Radio, please become a partner with us and donate any amount you'd like. You can go to solaceradio.com to do that, and we'd sure appreciate it. And it helps us to reach more and more people around the world with this great message of hope. Thank you for listening to Solace Radio. Now back to our program. The following message was recorded at Beth Zion Messianic Synagogue in Jackson, New Jersey. Join us every Saturday and learn to see the truth of Messiah through Jewish eyes. All right. In today's portion, uh, the reference is kitetze in Hebrew, which means when you go out. And it speaks about when they, went, when they would go out to war. There were some elements that are brought up in this passage. And we're going to be spending most of our time looking at some of the portions in the New Covenant, but also... We're going to highlight the Haftorah portion as one of the messages of Isaiah during this seven-week period. We've been going through the different messages of Isaiah, which are speaking as a prelude to the coming of Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot. And as we consider this, there is always, as I said before, with every Jewish holiday, there is a prelude. There's something that prepares us for that time. What prepares us for a time of making shuva, of returning to the Lord, is the ability for our pride to be broken, the ability for us to understand that all of the humiliations that we have suffered are not those things that define us, but that God brings these messages of comfort to his people who have suffered because of their sins. He says, I will restore you. And as we look into those passages, we will see that. But I want to bring up, because the title for today is called Abolishing Shame. Abolishing Shame. And you know, shame is a very destructive force, self-destructive force, sometimes appropriated by ourselves, but often appropriated and encouraged by those who bring humiliation or take delight in bringing down people. And we're living in a time when people are very selfish. But how do you abolish shame? First, we have to acknowledge shame. And one of the things that we see in the portion that we read is as a follow-up to the beginning of this section where it talks about when you see, when you go to war and you see a woman who is really having lost, as a virgin, having lost the men in, in, in her life and all of that, and you want to take her as your wife, there are these special details that are brought up so that it would not be an issue of humiliation. And even when it goes into describing a man who takes a wife and in the process of that discovers that he doesn't like her, he is to go before or she is to go before the council and they are to, in the details, they're to show the proof of her virginity before birth or before, before birth, before their marriage. And if found satisfactorily, he not only has to pay a fine to the father who has been humiliated 
by the idea that his wife has been playing the prostitute, and she wasn't. It was a false accusation. He is to pay a fine to the father. And this is the interesting clause. He's not allowed to ever divorce her under any circumstances after that. Very, it's one of those very strong statements. Now, of course, if she was found to be guilty of this, uh, it didn't go well with her. But even still, they would do a ceremony for her to show the disdain for the humiliation brought on the family. So humiliation is something that can be brought on by others. But often when it's a, an accusation, even a false accusation, you can't just shake it. You have that stigma that is there. People say, oh, is that the one who did? Oh, no, they didn't do that. Oh, but I heard that they did. You know, you can't get away from it anymore. It's sort of out there. And there is a weight that not only the person, but everybody in that experience goes through, a sense of humiliation, of shame. But the fact of the matter is that in this portion, God is giving instructions to the people about how to treat people in a way that does not bring humiliation and shame. He purposely goes through all of the details of what goes on so that that will be something removed from the people and how to deal with it. And in the process of looking at this, you see also that um, one of the, I guess one of the ultimate humiliations would be to try to slaughter the innocent. And he gives reference at the end of this portion. This is my recap of the whole portion. At the end of the portion, he says, Remember Amalek. Do not forget what he did when Israel came out of Egypt. He didn't go against them as an army. He went on the, on the, on the back end and attacked the young ones who were straddling behind, the older ones who were straddling behind. And it was with this that God said, do not forget. He said, remember, don't forget. Remember, don't forget what they did and what happened. And it was one of those rare cases where he said they will never come into the temple area when there would be a temple. However, with other nations, he showed that there was a time period, certain amount of generations. But in the process of that time, things are worked out. Now, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail with that, but I mention it just to say that in this whole section, there is care that God gives to understanding those who are humiliated. In the portion we read in Devarim, in chapter 24, we saw what happens with your fields. As you're prospering and as things are going well, you have your fields. And it says that if you forgot a sheaf in, of grain in the field, just leave it. Don't go back and go over it again. Don't go back over the grapevines again. Don't go back over the olive trees again. Leave it for those who are the orphans, the widows, and the foreigners. There is a provision because, you know, if you're an orphan or a, a foreigner or a widow and didn't have sustenance or means, it can be a humiliating thing to have to ask for help. But what he provided was an attitude in the hearts of the people to always provide for everyone in need, even those who are suffering lack, and provided in a way that allows them to feel the sense of, of self-worth as they go out and pull in those sheaves themselves. They go out and gather the grapes. They go out and gather the olives. 
there's an there's something of the industry that is there that gives them a sense of self-worth so that they don't walk around feeling like it's all a handout and that they are humiliated. When you live in that state, and when we see also, even statistically, you can see that in situations where families come up under welfare, welfare was always meant to be a safety net for a period of time. But you'll find generations of people moving and never coming out of that. What happens is not just simply that their needs are met, but needs being met are not enough to satisfy that awkwardness of shame that is there when we can't feel like we're producing what we need to be doing for ourselves and in our lives. And so there is always this provision that God made for people to be able to have the things that they needed, the way to help them to stand up on their own, and there was always the care not to humiliate. He said, remember, and interestingly, you, you think about what Amalek did in bringing a terrible uh, attack against the innocent lives. Uh, it was the end of chapter 25. But he also said right before that, uh, in reference to, uh, to, to Egypt, uh, um, I'm trying to think where it was. Anyway, in that, in that chapter, he references Egypt and says, remember how you deal with strangers because you were strangers in Egypt. And he wanted them to remember. You remember what it was like to be a slave. You remember the humiliation that you felt, the shame that you felt. And God delivered us out of that place of shame. And you see, here is the wonder of shame. It can be destructive. It can be a, a, a debilitation that is worse than a physical infirmity. Because it's in the core of who you are. And yet, God always makes provision to address the shame of our youth, to address the place of abandonment or the place where we feel like we have somehow fallen short of the glory of God, where we don't feel worthy. And the fact is that in reality, by our actions, we're not worthy. But God, in his love and his infinite mercy, opens up to us a way to abolish shame. And how did he do that? Well, we read in the passage in Matthew, when he tells them to take his yoke upon them and learn of him. Now, why isn't this coming up? Give me one second. I'll bring it back up again. In Matthew chapter 11, as we looked at that, we look at that verse at the end, he says, come to me, all you who are struggling and burdened, and I will give you rest. That struggling and burdened is the result of not just having physical tiredness over working too hard, that struggling, that restlessness, that burden, that weight of guilt, that weight of shame is such that it keeps us bound in a way that nothing seems to be able to relieve it. And yet God says that if you yoke with me, and a yoke was what they used to take two oxen together to make them work with double power to be able to move through plowing the fields and things of that nature. But in essence, what Yeshua was saying was, you know, you wouldn't take a, uh, two different animals of different strength to plow together because there would be a, a, a mix of strength. It would be a problem. And yet God looks at us and says, take my yoke upon you. Learn of me. In a sense, as we yoke ourselves to him and look at the way that he lived his life and what he is calling us to do, 
He is taking the weight of the burden. He has already paid the price that we deserve, which was, which was a death sentence because of sin, because of shame, because of all of those degradating things that have happened in our life. And yet in that sacrifice that we see in the temple and in the, in the tabernacle, in the Levitical system that was set up, we see it all coming to fulfillment in the sacrifice of Messiah himself. And in so doing, he opened the door to the heavens for us. He opened the pathway for us to experience intimacy with the Father, to be able to come in, not with arrogance, because when you come before a holy God, the one thing that becomes clear is we don't deserve to be there. We feel the guilt. We feel the shame. We feel the burden of all the things that we've done. And the wonder of it all, the grace that really is made manifest is not simply unmerited favor. The thing that humbles us the most is not being humiliated. We might think the worst possible thing is to be humiliated. No. You know what brings humility more than anything else? Coming into the presence of a God who loves us and is so far above us and yet chooses to have us come before him. It is, humil it, it is humbling because he doesn't have to have audience with us. He doesn't have to take the time, and yet it is, it's his love and his desire to bring us to himself that allows God to send Messiah, as it says, the Son of God, to come and have Yeshua lay his life down for us. While we were yet rebels, he died for us. He rose again to justify what was accomplished, so that he now sits at the right hand of the throne of God, makes intercession for us through the Spirit of God that comes to dwell in us, and he opens up a channel of relief from shame, from guilt, and from the burden and weight of sin. So when he says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, what is it that we learn of him, that he is so superior and so strong and so mighty that we will emulate that? How do we take his yoke upon us? He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Why is that burden light? Two things. One is as he yokes himself to us and we yoke ourselves with him, he takes the weight of all of that guilt. He takes upon himself <clears throat> upon himself all that's necessary to really carry out what being yoked with him represents. But also, he removes the weight that we're carrying already, the weight of sin, the weight of guilt, the weight of shame. And I, I know if you've ever gone through a humiliating experience, somebody saying to you, it's okay, don't worry, don't, it, not everybody saw that. But you know the whole world saw it. You can't just absolve yourself of that. It weighs on us, doesn't it? And yet God has a way of addressing it that takes away the weight of that guilt, the weight of that sin, the shame that is imparted. You remember when it mentions in the scripture, Yeshua had an experience where uh, he was, they were talking about uh, the one who was forgiven more, the one who loved more was the one who was forgiven more. Why was that? The one didn't feel like what they did was so bad. They didn't appreciate the value of what it was to be forgiven. 
But the one who felt the weight of their loss, the weight of their sin and the guilt of their sin, when it was removed, had a greater sense of appreciation because they knew what that weight was doing to them. And when it was lifted, their burden was taken away and they were yoked with Messiah. They became one with him. And what was sadness became joy. What was sorrow became healing. And it's a wonderful thing that God was conveying through all of this. It says in Psalm 51, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And so often there is that brokenness that accompanies the blessing of God. And sometimes, for whatever reason it is, I always wonder when you see about these people who give their testimony and said, I was worth $37 million. And I knew I was doing everything wrong. And then I lost half of it. And I continued. And I, I thought, could he have stopped at maybe $5 million and then given a little bit to the building fund? No, they never. They said, you always hear the same thing. And then I lost it all. Right? They lost it all. And then they realized that they couldn't do it themselves. They really needed the Lord. Now, you would, you would like it that they figured it out while they had a little bit of a cushion. But see, sometimes... That cushion is enough to fool you into thinking, I can get it all back. And all you're doing is straining with everything you have to make it work. And then you find in that moment as they've lost it all, they discovered an all that they didn't know existed. They discovered a God who said, I don't care about your resume. I don't care about what you've accomplished. I want you. Now you're finally in a place where we can talk and you have an ear to hear now. That's the reason why it always gets to the bottom. You know, whether you have millions of dollars or whether you have hundreds of dollars or you have nothing, it's amazing how people, even who are poor with nothing, will still stand against God and think they can still do it themselves. But there is a brokenness that happens that opens up. We mentioned earlier, it's like a seed that has its shell. And you can keep a seed forever, for a long time. They, they had discovered in the, in the pyramids in Egypt Seeds that had never been, they were kept away from soil. They experimented and planted and they grew. And there is, there is something waiting to come forth. And oftentimes if we keep that hard shell around us and we refuse to be broken, we also keep ourselves from receiving the fruitfulness that'll come as we are losing our life to gain his. I mentioned before in Isaiah, and we're actually coming to a close, but I, I want to mention the portion in Isaiah because Isaiah 54 really says it well. In Isaiah 54, beginning in verse 1, these are some elements that you would think bring in what would be considered a stigma or a humiliation in Israel at that time. The contrast, verse 1 of Isaiah 54, sing, O barren woman who has never had a child. That's almost cruel. In that day, not to have a child was humiliating. It was, it, you were not really fulfilling your destiny as they looked at it. But he's a sing barren woman who has never had a child. Burst into song, shout for joy. You who have never been in labor for the deserted wife will have more children than the woman who is living with her husband, says the Lord. Enlarge the space for your tent. Extend the curtains of your dwelling. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Make your ten pegs firm. He is talking about an expansion. A person who is in sorrow over not having produced life. 
feeling like their life is worthless. He's describing Israel in her day and her rebellion, not bearing fruit, not feeling the joy, not having the experiences that were meant to be, that were a part of their destiny. They felt the humiliation of not feeling that, of not experiencing it, the shame of not accomplishing what they thought was a part of their destiny. And in the process of all of this, God speaks words of comfort and says, you will bear more children. You will bear more fruit. You will enlarge the space of your tents. For you will spread out to the right and the left. Your descendants will possess the nations and inhabit the desolated cities. We look at desolated cities and we can say, all I feel is desolation. All I feel is ruin. We could look at pictures of Texas right now, underwater and buildings and houses gone, submerged under a watery grave for those homes. And yet we do know that in time, people will work to rebuild and to restore those things. Well, in this case, it's the same kind of devastation. When you see devastation all around you and you don't experience the assistance that you feel you need, you feel the weight of it again. You wonder, why did this happen? Did I deserve it? Did I do something wrong? We try to figure it out. That's not what God wants us to do. He wants us to draw near to him. And God is the one who, as we humble ourselves before him, will open up the windows of heaven. He will pour out a blessing that there will not be room enough to contain. He says to them, you will inhabit the desolated cities. Now, he's not saying you will be desolate and inhabit the desolated cities that will stay desolate. He's telling them you'll inhabit desolated cities because they will be transformed by the work of God's compassion and his love and his comfort. These are the passages of Isaiah that we read leading up to Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, getting our hearts ready to understand the comfort that God wants to provide for all of us, no matter what we feel we've lost. He wants to restore us. This is God's heart. He says, don't be afraid, for you won't be ashamed. Don't be afraid, for you won't be ashamed. Don't be afraid. Afraid and ashamed. Oftentimes, Shame carries with it a fear, a fear of exposure, a fear that others will find out, a fear that humiliation will become even greater. But he says, don't be afraid. Many times when he says, don't be afraid, he says, don't be afraid for I am with you. Don't be afraid for I'll be with you. Don't be afraid, I will restore you. God's heart, the reason we are told not to be afraid is to identify first that we are afraid. Because sometimes when we're afraid, we don't want to admit we're afraid. <laughs> we'll say, don't be afraid. Who's afraid? I'm not afraid. You afraid? <laughs> I think of that time with Joshua. He says, fear not. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. How did he know he was afraid? Joshua probably didn't even fully accept that he was afraid. But in admitting and acknowledging that we are fearful, God can say, don't be afraid because I'm here. Don't be afraid because you're not alone. Don't be afraid for you won't be ashamed. Don't be discouraged, for you won't be disgraced. You will forget the shame of your youth. No longer remember the dishonor of being widowed, for your husband is your maker. Adonai Tzavaot, the Lord of hosts, is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He will be called the God of all the earth, for Hashem calls, called you back like a wife abandoned and grief-stricken, 
A wife married in her youth cannot be rejected, says the Lord. Briefly, I abandoned you, but with great compassion, I am taking you back. It wasn't God who abandoned Israel. It was Israel who abandoned God. But the wonder of God's comfort is this. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. Just a chapter back from this. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've gone after our own ways, and the Lord has laid on him, Messiah, the iniquity of us all. God made provision for us. And that's why he can say, don't worry. Briefly, I abandoned you. But why did he abandon her? You say, well, how could God abandon us? I'm telling you, in reality, we abandon him. We think the green is grasser on the, <laughs> the green is grasser. The grass is greener on the other side. We think that we can find fulfillment in something other than him. And we find ourselves lying down in sorrow. And God doesn't leave us in sorrow and balk at us and say, ha, you think you're something? Look at you now. He doesn't do that. He says, now I can work with you. Are your ears open now? Is your eye open now? Will you now experience the wonder of what I will do when you open yourself up to me? Don't be afraid or ashamed of what you've done. Oftentimes, that keeps us imprisoned because we get the false concept that God could never forgive me for this. I remember something years ago with my sister-in-law. My brother was in one room accepting the Lord into his life. She was in another room. And it was, it was really amazing because they're talking with her and she said, she's going to lose him now because he'll accept the Lord and I can never do that. They talked with her a little longer. And you know what it was when she was raised Catholic? And when she was younger, she was abused. She was so angry at God that she went into the Catholic church, looked up at the crucifix, and she, she cursed Yeshua out. She says, I don't want to ever see you again. I don't want you. You failed me. You abandoned me. And I'm done with you. And she cursed him out and left. And in her mind, these many years later, she said, I can never be with him because I cursed God and said, I don't want to ever hear you and see you again. And it was in those moments that they said, he'd never forget you. He's not forsaken you. Even if we forsake him, he is always ready to turn and do it. And in that moment, she saw the truth. She accepted him into her life. The weight of the guilt and the weight of the shame and the hatred towards God disappeared like that. It was lifted. As she was yoked with Messiah, she knew of God before, but at that moment she found him, and he really found her. At a place of her lowest ebb was a place where she could lay it aside and not put up a front anymore, and God healed and delivered her, and they've been an amazing couple ever since. Their kids are amazing. Everything they've done has been an expansion of all that God has done. So a brief moment he says I abandoned you but with great compassion I am taking you back I was angry for a moment and hid my face from you but with everlasting grace I will have compassion on you says Hashem your Redeemer for these are like the waters of Noah to me they will never again overshadow you the mountains may leave and the hills may be removed everything circumstantial around you may change but my grace will never leave you and my covenant of peace will not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. This is what God is calling us to do. How do we abolish shame? 
You can't wish it away. You can't fake it. The forgiveness of God's heart towards us, the compassion and what Messiah has done for us opens that door so that we can be free from the chains that hold us with that shame and with all of that. You know, if we carry that with us, we can't even be honest with the people around us because we're not even honest with ourselves. But God has a way of penetrating through the shell to release all the potential that is waiting to be unleashed and become fruitful in our lives as we yield ourselves to him. How do we abolish shame? We can't do it ourselves. We humble ourselves before God, and God removes the shame. God removes the weight. God yokes us to himself and takes the, the burden that we don't have to carry anymore. And we can experience the wonder of our relationship with him. Avinu Malkano, our father and our king, we thank you so much for all of the love and compassion that you have made available to us. We thank you that we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And yet in your compassion and in your amazing love, you made provision for us to be set free from the shame and all that it contains and all that it brings, from the weight and the gravity of sin and from all that it causes us to suffer and those who suffer as a result as well. But Lord, you are the one who said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me for I am meek and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your soul for my, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Lord, we humble ourselves before you and ask you to open up our hearts to receive fully what you have made available to us. We do humble ourselves before you, O oh God, and ask you to come in. You are the one drawing us. We come here because you've drawn us here. We've come because you have a message to us and you want to speak it to our hearts. It's a message that says, I want to dwell with you and walk with you and be with you so that you can be my people and I will be your God. Lord, make yourself manifest to us today. You know, if there's anyone here who's never asked the Messiah into your life, that's the beginning. That may, you say, you might say, well, you know, that would bring shame to my family. Uh, that would bring uh, 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 uncertainty and I would be despised by my relatives. <laughs> Whatever it is, that, that shame is false. That accusation is not from God, but from the adversary, Hasatan. Those things need to be put aside because God's desire at the moment is just for you. And when you tell him you're tired of all of the weight and gravity of those things that have been holding you down, and you open your heart and ask Yeshua to come into your life, everything from that moment changes. And so I want to encourage you that if you've never asked Yeshua into your life, just simply ask him in. Humble yourself before him. There's no magic formula of prayer. There's just acknowledging that we have sinned and fallen short of his glory. And it's not hard to imagine that because whatever we've done, it certainly has not measured up to the fullness of his glory. And yet God in his love has made available that we can call upon him and he will deliver us and he will set us free and into a large place. He'll expand the cords of our tent in our life so that we experience the fullness of what we have been created to do. So I'm going to ask you when people are, when people are up here praying for you to come forward too at that time and just pray with someone and uh, you can ask the Lord into your life. Maybe there's someone here who has asked the Lord into your life and you feel the weight of new burdens that have come upon you and you think that, you can, that, that somehow God could never forgive you now because you knew before and look at what you've done. God is waiting 
always for us to return. Israel sinned that went into captivity. It's been 2,000 years, and he's restored us back to the land, and he's begun to bring in an awareness and a hunger to know the God of Israel. And this is something new that has happened. And what people are finding their Messiah, and we are so excited to be a part of that. Lord, we ask you to touch each one and set the captives free by the power of your spirit through Yeshua, our Messiah. We're in agreed by saying, Amen.